Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Power in Weakness. So turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 to 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Commendable Ministry. We've all heard it, you know, people accusing Christians of hypocrisy. You know, sometimes I've heard this complaint when it comes to business dealings. Don't do business with someone who quotes scripture constantly. I've heard that said because you never know when they're going to take advantage of you. And of course, sadly, that's sometimes true. But let me suggest to you another way in which Christians can discredit the gospel. It's when the local church is racked with controversy. I'm not saying we should quickly try to cover over any disagreements that we might have. I don't think that's healthy. Instead of discreetly ignoring our difficulties, let me suggest that we deal with them in an honest and forthright and a biblical way. But here's another way in which the gospel is often discredited. It's when a high-profile Christian, I mean, most of the time, you know, a pastor in a very well-regarded and highly sought-after ministry, I mean, suddenly he's discovered having lived in a way which is inconsistent with his calling. The world watches and heaps on scorn, and and many won't even consider the gospel because of that. What we have in 2 Corinthians 6, 3-13 is a wonderful statement of how Christians should interact with their leaders, and of course, in the case of Corinth, how the Corinthians should judge the ministry of Paul, who's not just their pastor, but he's also an apostle appointed by Jesus. But as we examine this passage, we should also notice that Paul provides himself as an example of how all Christian leaders should behave. Behave in this way, and the gospel is adorned in our culture. Abandon this way, and the gospel is disgraced. But here's something else in this section of Scripture. It's about how Christians should regard their leaders and how they should treat their leaders and how they should hold their leaders in their hearts. So there's a lot to learn here. Now, when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, he knew that the vast majority who called that church home, I mean, they were genuinely saved. But as we have seen, I mean, there was very rough water in that church. False teachers had spread rumors, and through them, Paul had been maligned. He's not very impressive when he preaches, some of them had said, and he's certainly formidable when he writes his letter, but when you actually spend time with him, I mean, there's not too much to him. And so the rumors began. He's not as great as some of the other preachers we've had. You know, I suppose a contemporary example would be, you know, we know of somebody and we say, well, yeah, he preaches well, but as a counselor or as an administrator or as a leader, well, he's just awful. Well, now, as we read our passage, I want you to notice that, yeah, Paul is commending himself here. He's saying, if you're going to judge me, and clearly it seems that you're going to, make sure that you judge me well. So we start with verse 3, where Paul says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Well, now, what kind of obstacles are to be found in a ministry? You know, other translations to this verse say, We do not give anyone an opportunity to take offense. You know, it's an important place to start as we examine the worthiness of a ministry. We know that Paul frequently called on believers to examine his way of life. And in 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul had urged the Corinthians to imitate him. He, He was that confident that if they examined him fairly and carefully, they would find no reason to see hypocrisy in him. One example of not putting an obstacle in someone's way. 
had to do with receiving pay for his ministry. See, Paul affirmed that those who preach the gospel have the right to make a living by the gospel. And yet, listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 18. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So Paul's really saying, look, if my salary becomes an insurmountable issue for you, I'm just not going to accept the salary. And And that's how Paul lived. For him, it was always the gospel that took priority, not his paycheck. Now, in contrast to Paul, we do know that there are some in ministry today who are in ministry and who constantly put obstacles in front of other people's faith. I mean, we all know of of pastors who are, are guilty of adultery or some who are guilty of abusing others around them. Others love to exercise power over others, and still others have become so obsessed with money. They've they've built an entire ministry, a ministry that's made them fabulously wealthy. The watching world sees that hypocrisy, and a hypocrisy in the pulpit, that is, when people see that the minister of the word is inauthentic, well, it produces a genuine stumbling block. There are those who will never consider the gospel simply because the Christian leader has become a detriment to that same gospel. See, Paul's determination was never to put an obstacle in anyone's way. And when he says that no fault may be found in our ministry, he doesn't mean that he's been sinless. Every minister has sins. But Paul is saying that there's nothing that can be found in him that would disqualify him from effective gospel ministry. It's wonderful when a minister doesn't have skeletons in his closet. doesn't mean he's not criticized. I mean, that always happens. We've seen that Paul himself had plenty of criticism. That's not the issue. He is saying that his ministry is not a stumbling block to anyone who seeks Christ. But then having said that, Paul now moves from the negative to the positive. Look at the first half of verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. That's not an arrogant statement. When Paul wrote 1 Timothy 2 and when he wrote Titus chapter 1, he gave the marks or the attributes required of elders who are the pastors of the church. Paul understands what Christ requires of all his ministers, and so he knows what faithfulness looks like. Now, as we move from his opening statement, we now come to verses 4 to 10, and Paul then gives examples of what faithfulness looks like. First, in verses 4 to 5, he's going to speak about his sufferings, or what the great preacher John Chrysostom called Paul's blizzard of troubles. And then second, in verses 6 to 7, Paul will speak about the positive graces that God has given him. And then third, Paul is going to speak about the paradoxes that he endures. And interestingly, as we study this passage, we should note that Paul lists all these characteristics of his ministry. The first group, that is the blizzard of troubles, He's going to list 10 characteristics. And then in the second, the positive graces, he's going to list another nine characteristics. And then finally, he will list out seven sets of contrasts. So it's a long list. Let's take them one step at a time. First, the blizzard of troubles, verses 4 and 5. He says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, inflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. And I think the phrase great endurance is meant to be the the heading of this section. And then it follows by the nine characteristics that help us to understand his endurance. 
Now, I know we can't closely examine all of these nine different characteristics, but let's say something about a few of them. Notice that Paul begins with the word afflictions. Now, it's the same word that he used all the way back in chapter 1, verse 8. And there he said, we don't want you to be unaware of the afflictions. So that's our word, the afflictions we experienced in Asia. And you'll remember that when Paul spoke about those afflictions, he said, we despaired of life itself. That is, when Paul mentions his afflictions, he's speaking about those things that that were greater than he thought he had the strength to bear. And yet he didn't run away. And then he used the word hardship. It's another general term. It's only used four times in the New Testament. It is a general word for anything that causes difficulty. Others translate the word as anguish. And then he speaks of calamities. That's a word that speaks of squeezing through a narrow space, a place where you might get stuck if God doesn't rescue you. And then the next six words, you know, the beatings, the imprisonment, so forth. Well, they're examples of what Paul went through in his experience. Now, at this point, I think it's right to ask, since this entire list in verses 4 through 10, it's supposed to be a list of the characteristics of a faithful minister. And so it's right to ask now, is this suffering part, this this, this whirlwind of storm that Paul is talking about, is this a characteristic of all faithful ministers? I remember once teaching the book of 2 Timothy. I was teaching it to a group of underground church pastors in North Africa. You know, some of them didn't know if they would be beaten or killed when they got home. You know, their situation is very different, you know, for instance, from the one Charles Spurgeon enjoyed in London when the local newspapers were clamoring to publish his sermons because most of London wanted to read what the great preacher had to say. So there's the contrast, isn't it? I mean, in some places, preachers are put to death, and in other places, they're lauded and applauded. What do we make of that? And yet, I think it's right for us to remember that even Spurgeon was so maligned in what had been called the downgrade controversy that after he died, his widow claimed that the pressure of that controversy led to his early death. June 2020, Back to the Bible Canada will be partnering with Back to the Bible India to conduct its third annual Bible teaching conference, hosting hundreds of Indian pastors across India, beginning in Delhi, then moving to Hyderabad and Chennai. Under the leadership of Dr. John Newfeld, pastors will learn the discipline of effectively teaching the Bible and sharing the gospel. This year, you can sponsor the attendance of an Indian pastor who may otherwise not have the resources to attend for only $55. It includes the cost of the conference, resources, travel, accommodations, and food. What a great investment in the church. Join us in equipping pastors in India. Call with your gift to support international initiatives or to send one or two or more pastors to the India Bible Teaching Conference this June. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit sendapastor.ca or backtothebible.ca. When I was in seminary, no professor told me about the, the suffering that being a faithful pastor actually required. I suspect that many of them didn't know, but I do wish that somebody had taught me because I think I needed to know. 
It is appointed unto faithful ministers of the gospel that they join with Jesus in drinking his cup of sufferings. Athanasius, the great defender of the faith, was banished from the empire. John Chrysostom was so persecuted by Queen Eudoxia, who had taken such a great dislike to the preacher that that she eventually removed him from his pulpit and ministry, and then Roman soldiers walked him at such a pace day after day that he simply died. John Wycliffe was so hated by the Romanist church after his death, they dug up his bones and had them burned. John Huss of Bohemia was burned at the stake again by the Romanist church. Martin Luther was declared a non-citizen of Europe so that anyone who killed him would be free from criminal prosecution. Jonathan Edwards, the great American pastor, after he had preached through the greatest revival in North American history, was thrown out of his pulpit by false accusations. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who in the midst of controversy found that his own loving brother actually turned against him. Yeah, it's true. That for some, the persecution is much greater than others. Some are killed while others simply suffer under the slander of the accuser. But hear this, if a Christian pastor is faithful, Satan will work to make his life miserable. And here's also another truth about this matter. Faithful servants like the Apostle Paul don't run away even when they want to. It's a mark of gospel faithfulness that faithful ministers remain faithful in the storm. Now, moving from his sufferings, Paul next gives a listing of these positive graces that attend his ministry. So I think this next section is so valuable because, you know, persecution alone does not mark a faithful servant of God. Some, as we know, claim persecution while they've been unfaithful. I know of one such case where a pastor had been found guilty of multiple charges of committing adultery and then claimed that he was mistreated in the process. (laughs) Boo-hoo, that's my response. It is important that no minister of the gospel define his faithfulness by only listing his hardships. Hardship by itself is no definitive mark of faithfulness. So let's now listen to the nine positive graces that Paul describes. I'm reading 2 Corinthians 6, verses 6 to 7. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Again, we have too many characteristics to examine each one of them in one teaching, but but I do notice that just like the former passage, this one also has a listing of virtues, and you can actually group them into three groups of three. That is, purity, knowledge, and patience form the first group. Kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, that's the second group. And then truthful speech, the power of God, and then the weapons of righteousness, that's the third group. And what's also interesting to me is that in the middle of these virtues, there is one which, if you think about it, it's really not a virtue at all. It's a person. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. So it seems to me that Paul wants to communicate by putting the Holy Spirit right in the middle of his list that he knows that all the things that are positive, both in his life and in his ministry, have come about because of the Holy Spirit. I notice also that the first eight of these virtues, at least in the Greek, all of them begin with the word in, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, and so forth. I think what Paul wants us to know that these virtues are a part of his life, that is, In the midst of his sufferings, these virtues are occurring. Suffering hasn't resulted in a bitter spirit for Paul or or an angry spirit or a doubting of the goodness of God's spirit. I hope you see it. 
The faithful minister is growing in godly virtues even while he is suffering. You know, the first virtue that Paul mentions is that of purity. And if we carefully study that word, as it unfolds in the New Testament, we're going to find out that the word is used to include things like faithfulness to Christ, sexual purity, and then fidelity to Christ. I mean, all of those things are under the the umbrella of what is meant by purity. Now, purity is an excellent virtue, and if you think about it, you might want to think of it in terms of drinking a glass of water. You know, pure water contains no other ingredients, only the water. There are no additives. And purity to Christ means to be wholly devoted to Christ. Nothing competes with Christ. Genuine ministers of the gospel belong to Christ. They're married to Christ, as it were. They allow no other commitments to compete with Christ. Christ and his gospel, that's their business. See, don't you see, this is the problem when ministers of the gospel become sidetracked by their fascination with something that the world offers them. A pure devotion to Christ forbids that kind of fascination. Christ and Christ alone is always foremost in their thinking. Now, notice, after describing purity, Paul now moves to the next virtue, and this one, knowledge. All ministers of the gospel should be known for their knowledge. As an apostle, Paul received his knowledge from a direct revelation from Jesus. But after Paul, no minister of the gospel can claim that. Instead, all ministers after the apostles gained their knowledge by a thorough and rigorous study of the writings of the apostles and the prophets. And I'm often alarmed when I hear of the small amount of time that some ministers actually spend in the text of Scripture. See, all ministers of the gospel are compelled not only to read their Bible through often, but also to know something as much as they can of the original languages, to be familiar with the context of any text, to outline Bible books, to know the historic background of a text, and then out of that, to patiently and lovingly apply that text rightly understood to the lives of their hearers. And it's this kind of knowledge, it's a freedom that's afforded to full-time pastors who become deeply immersed in the knowledge of the gospel through their study of Scripture. So there we have it. We have purity, knowledge, and then Paul adds genuine love, which I think he means both for God and for the people they serve. And then at the last of the list, Paul says, with spiritual weapons for the fight that lies ahead as they battle for the truth of the gospel. Now then, having described both a blizzard of his troubles and the positive graces that have been given to him by the Holy Spirit, the next section seems to follow logically. It's a section that describes the contrast that Paul is experiencing. So let's read 2 Corinthians 6 verses 8 to 10. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. You know, I love it when Paul says, as poor yet making many rich. You know, in our world, there are rich people who surround themselves with people who are constantly looking for spinoffs. You know, maybe they're looking for a handout or perhaps for a job or, or even a business opportunity or advice in how to make money. See, you can make a lot of money if you hang around rich people. That's a fact. 
But ministers of God have nothing of financial value to offer, and yet the richness they impart, it's far greater. You know, I, for my part, will never forget the dying words of a dear saint. She said to me, thanks for bringing my daughter to Christ. (laughs) And she looked deeply content and satisfied. Godly ministers bring godly benefit everywhere. And that's the seeming paradox of faithful ministry. It's going to cost you more than you can know, and yet the rewards are greater than any other profession can give. Now, having described faithful ministry, Paul now beautifully summarizes in chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. See, in the end, all faithful ministers widen their hearts to deeply love their people. And all faithful Christians who are being ministered to by their pastors widen their hearts to their pastors. It's a relationship of love. God's people, hear me, don't pick your pastors apart. And godly pastors, hear me, don't pick your people apart. Don't tell jokes about their foibles and, and carnality. You know, in my years of ministry, let me, let me share with you, I, I've, I've seen more criticism than I thought possible. But I am overwhelmed that far greater than the criticism, I have experienced more love than I thought existed in this world. But this is how God's people should feel about their pastor, and it's how God's pastors should feel about the people. They should say, we would lay down our lives for one another. John, thanks for your message today. It made me wonder, though, in our day and age today, what do you think would be the primary commendable thing of a faithful Christian? You know, Ben, as, as you ask the question, I mean, my mind is taken up in, in Daniel. And of course, you know, Daniel, uh, there are people that were looking for all kinds of charges against him. And in the end, they could find nothing except as it relates to his commitment to his God. And I would say the same should be true of every single faithful Christian. You know, when Paul speaks about honor and dishonor, or we're treated as imposters and yet we're true, uh, let the world say what it does about us, but when we are examined, may we have been found faithful to our God and have been faithful also to his word. Now, I would think that if, if that's said of any believer, I think it's commendable, uh, not only in the sight of God, of course it is, but in the sight of others as well. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in 2 Corinthians, Power in Weakness, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share with you how blessed and encouraged we are that God is continuing to use this ministry to impact the spiritual lives of so many through faithful Bible teaching. Recently, we received these words of encouragement. Thank you for the great role you play in the lives of Christians around the world. Shauna wrote, your work has enriched the lives of countless people. And finally, may God continue to grow his army and kingdom through your work. You know, we're so grateful. Your efforts, your support of Bible teaching makes this ministry possible nationally and globally. This month, would you please consider supporting the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada across the country? Your gifts make this ministry possible. To learn more, 
or to support this Bible teaching ministry with a financial gift, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.